0: This pre-recorded show furnished by Matthew Mattern. This is Unite and Heal America, I'm the show with Matt uh, Mattern. I'm on KABC 790. I'm delighted to have a guest on the program, a great guest, State Senator Bob Wykowski, uh, who represents the Northern California District around Fremont. Uh, State senators in California represent about a million people, more than our Congress people. So, uh, Senator, you have a wealth of experience uh, having served as a senator for seven years and also in the State Assembly. Before that, you've chaired a number of committees, including one on environmental quality. Uh, You've worked on housing, judiciary, and a number of others. There's a lot of California issues I'd like to talk about, but first I'd like to get your take on the historic inauguration and what it means for the country, California. And if you tell us a little bit about Vice President Harris and I understand that you've uh, worked with her.
1: Yes, Vice President Harris, then Attorney General Harris, helped me out on one of my bills on uh, bank levies. You know, I've done a lot of bills on on bank or wage garnishment. Excuse me. I have a bank levy bill that's in law now and wage garnishment to try to reduce the amount money that creditors can take out of your check because basically they could take 25 percent every time and it really exacerbates homelessness and and chronics and she was instrumental in throwing her support behind it and saying this was an important bill and that always helps out when somebody from the uh either the governor or uh, administrator and you know she was supported by all the uh democratic senate caucus we all got supporting her when she was running for uh, president and vice president so she understands the challenges that we have here in California, and everybody's just so proud of her. I mean, the, you know, the, the news is taking care of telling her story. So she's uh, she's somebody that uh, makes us feel more comfortable in California when we're, we're trying to uh, effectuate national public policy. She knows where we're coming from. And if they say, oh, Senator Wykowski's calling on an arbitration matter, she may take the phone call because she says, oh, yeah, I know Wykowski's. He's the nuts and bolts guy on this on this issue. So uh what can you say about the the hope that I think so many people are feeling right now that we're gonna get back to business? I mean, I you know, I have the greatest respect for my Republican colleagues and uh Democrats and Republicans throughout the state. And and I, I'm an institution guy. I like to make the institution work. And if it's not working, if the courts aren't working or the legislature is not working, let's put our energy in in a polite, dignified way and make it work. And I don't think that we've had that for the last uh, four years. And uh, I think President Biden and Vice President Harris uh, brings it up, brings that there. So it's a different tone, very difficult challenges. I mean, 50-50 split for guys like me and all the legislators throughout the, the country know that's a tight little uh, parameters that you have to try to get public policy affected. But we're filled with hope today.
0: Well, it certainly was a great day for our country to see our first uh, woman sworn in as uh, vice president and and an African-American and Asian um Background. So I, I know a number of my coworkers, and and I were very excited about it, and the historic first, and uh, what a great role model for young women in uh, in California and across the country and across the
1: world. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's hard for us to put figures on it. I mean, I represent a district. You saying a million people. I think my numbers are fifty six percent. Uh, Asian Pacific Islanders. I have a huge in Indo community from India, but a lot of um, Pakistanis and uh, folks, 54% of folks um, and Chinese and Vietnamese and all that. And the little girls in, in high school and elementary school that now see the vice president of the United States is just, it's just wonderful. It's wonderful for uh, our state and for the country. Right. So I um... Pivoting to
0: the environmental issues, which I know you spent a lot of time on in in the Senate and before that in the uh, in the Assembly, uh, what do you expect the uh, the current administration to do along those uh, along that front, and uh, and what uh, should California be pushing to get them to do?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's several programs. I mean, one of the things that that we've done in California is we have our renewable portfolio standard. standard. The electricity that Southern Edison and PG&E and Sempra produce is about 60 percent from renewable sources. That doesn't include hydro. Uh, That's been not an accident. We have put some pressure in the last 20 years and I will say for the big 3 they've come through with with the renewable standards. So we're doing more solar, we've brought the price of solar down, we have we've developed most of the wind here before we get to offshore. So I expect the the federal administration to be working on on those products or uh those policies. And, you know, it doesn't it's not for the detriment or anybody. It's just saying this is clean, reduces the the carbon footprint. The other is the automobile uh, emission standards. I mean, we've California, since I was a kid, uh, was able to have their own standards. And now we have 18 states that follow our emission standards. And there's been several lawsuits with the uh, previous uh, administration about what we should be able to do that. I think think folks are gonna be able to follow California standards. I hope for the industry. There's just one standard. It, you know, it's better for car manufacturers that they have one emission standards, and we get in, increased mileage uh, um, from each vehicle. They're cleaner, and and those things uh, occur. The others are, you know, the, the in the weeds is is stationary sources, the polluters in our state. How do we uh, reduce the amount of pollution that we have? And we've taken the cap and trade program and. I've spent a lot of time being a critic of that because I really want it to be robust. I I want, you know, the world talks about uh, ambition, climate ambition that that folks need. And people look to California, particularly the last four years when the United States left the climate, the Paris uh, Climate Agreement, they look to us for leadership. And sometimes I don't think we're doing enough, whether it's in the fires and doing prescribed burns and prevention, reducing the amount of fuel we have, or with the cap and trade program, really making sure that these polluters pay the price of of polluting or change the mechanics, whether making cement or refining oil and all that, and uh, reduce the amount of carbon that they're emitting into the the atmosphere.
0: Well, one of the ideas that you had in a uh, a prior bill, uh, which unfortunately uh, didn't pass, it was uh, SB 775, which kind of, I think, uh, puts the blueprint in place for a border adjustment tax, which is something that I was a proponent of, which I think is is fair. And it was, in my understanding, uh, a carbon tax based upon import. So if the Chinese are uh, using a lot of carbon to create a pro- uh, a product, that they would face a tax when it hits the U.S., which would then... Uh, make it fair for our manufacturers who shouldn't be the only ones playing on the playing field of low emissions uh, this way if the Chinese are going to have high emissions, they pay a tax and and it's a good way to incentivize good behavior around the entire
1: planet right I mean we never we don't want our industries our 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 uh manufacturers to be adversely affected because another state or another country is, is polluting is uh, allowing their polluters to undercut because you know, what pollution is, is it's, you're not calculating the cost of production, right? If you, if you calculate the cost of production, you say, Oh, that's a, uh, that diesel engine, you're going to pay some more money for that. Um, that was a, yeah, that was the way that the, the way that we dealt with having incentivizing new technologies to come on board to reduce those, and having our manufacturers and our polluters do that, I think we have pretty clean oil refineries. It's a bit dirty business, right? But but if all the oil refineries in the whole world were at the same level as California, we'd see the emissions just drop immediately because some of them are some of them are the 1930s, right? Um, and I think uh, you know it's a, it's an idea. So I think that the federal government, I know John Kerry's interested in trying to figure out how do I level the playing field. In throughout the throughout countries. So a border adjustment tax may be polluters pay.
0: Well, to me, it's uh, one of the most elegant ways to deal with the problem. And it also deals with it globally because it's uh, it doesn't make sense for the US and uh, Europe to be the only ones focusing on this problem and having all the other countries pollute like crazy because we're we're not going to solve the problem. We have to have everybody uh, pulling together on this one,
1: right? And if and it, what it says it says to developing nations like India and China, you know, five years ago John Kerry was telling them you cannot build all these coal processing uh, facilities, energy uh, facilities. You got to go natural gas or go with go with go with uh, uh, solar or wind, and they've done it. They've done it in this last five years where we know that's the worst of the worst that can go in. So, yeah, that, that's a, uh, that, uh, unfortunately, I, you know, Governor Brown had a different idea. I mean, I had a cap and trade program that gave a dividend to every citizen. It just, you know, it says when we made money from the from the taxes that we did, there was a rebate that went to every citizen. So clearly the poorest of, of us, that, you know, that $500 or $200, whatever the amount was, really compensated them because they have a smaller carbon footprint than somebody who's more affluent.
0: Okay, we're going to be going into a break. And uh, I just wanted to remind our listeners that I'm here with State Senator uh, Bob Wykowski, and we're talking about uh, the environment as well as we'll be talking about homelessness. Uh, Come back and We'll uh, we'll get to talk uh, with him about these issues going forward. This is Mad Matter, and I'm back here with our guest, uh, Senator Bob Wykowski, and talking about issues facing California, one of the big issues facing California is homelessness. And this is a big and important issue here in LA, but also in Northern California. Uh, There's a proposal I'd like to talk to you about. It's to give uh, money to homeowners who would take in a homeless person kind of along the lines of the uh, foster care program. And uh, the homeowner would be vetted via background check and there'd be a homeless person also go through a screening process to make sure they would be a good fit for the program, and the hope is that we could house thousands of unhoused people uh, into vacant bedrooms we have around the state, and it could be done uh, much more cost effectively than the five hundred and fifty to seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars a unit that it currently is costing the government to build uh, units to house homeless people so I think this is an issue. I, I wanted to see uh, what you thought about this type of initiative and uh, whether it would be something you might be willing to sponsor.
1: Well, I've I've read the initiative and I think it has obvious merits. I mean, you know, when like you indicated, when you're spending five, six hundred thousand dollars to build an affordable housing unit, we've got all kinds of bills that are coming back this year to spend more money and to increase fees so that we could get a bundle of money. Um to to build some more units. And the affordable housing, I say industry or lobbyists all like to own their own 60 unit facility. When you look around, you realize that as people are aging and kids are moving out, that there are a lot of empty bedrooms. I mean, the the bill at its its fundamental um, uh, concept identifies that it's not that there's not places for people to sleep. There's just this this person's in a four-bedroom house living by themselves. That person's in a three-bedroom house living by themselves. How do you match them together? So I think the bill has merits. I'm going to talk to Scott Weiner. He's the uh, chair of the housing committee in the Senate about it. You know, there's there's obvious there's some questions because um, you know we all new ideas. Do we want somebody that was homeless yesterday to come into my house tomorrow? Uh, you know, there's there's that transition. And is there somebody who's already been in a facility, maybe comes to my house and that person off the street goes in and, it is, and every homeless person has a different story. You know, we've got a guy here that was in the newspaper. He's teaching at our community college and he just lost his apartment. He's homeless and he's teaching classes. So we've got to look at all these ideas, Matt, because our problem's not getting any better. I mean, last year, the governor devoted his entire state of the state to homelessness. And what did we get done? I mean, COVID hit. I get that. So there's there's an excuse. But it really these low cost opportunities and having people volunteer that says, "Okay, I want it's a problem. I'm willing to take whatever the stipend is and let somebody live with me for a year or two.
0: Right. Well, I see opportunity, too, for people who are lower income, but have a house that is less than fully occupied, that this would be uh, an opportunity for them to rent a room, essentially, and get A decent amount of money for that, and serve the community as well. And we probably have lots of former social workers and uh, people who drug counselors who would have some ability to work with the homeless population, uh, who could who could benefit from this as well. Which would be well.
1: We know that all those services that are provided because sometimes people have homelessness is just one of the ills that people are uh experiencing i was talking to some home affordable housing advocates and they were letting me know that one-third of people now who are the extremely low income can we have low income very low income and extremely low income the bottom of the bottom the extreme a third of this extremely low income are homeowners they're on purity they bought their house they worked you know you know, 70, 80 years old, they bought their house when it was 25 grand, they paid for it, but now they're extremely low income. So what you're talking about that, that's a person that could use a little extra coin just to live, just to live. They're just hanging on with this, you know, the pandemic and, and all the things that our uh, modern society is putting on us. And I, I was surprised by that statistic. So I think that there may be an appetite for that.
0: Right, there are a lot of seniors out there that are just getting Social Security, who are who are just barely making ends meet, barely enough to to pay for food and medicine. And uh, so, this would be a situation where we obviously we need to get the homeless people, and and that's the process and the procedure that the bill sets forth is that that uh, the social service agencies would make sure that the person that they're placing meets Criteria that they're sober, that they're not, uh, you know, having problems that would would
1: not work in in a home environment. Right. I mean, I, I put that I, I I put that in with you know I've done a lot of work with uh, accessory dwelling units ADUs and you know some of these garage conversions are cost one hundred fifty thousand bucks and I say to the affordable housing advocates why would you not. Find three homeowners and convert three units and put people that are in your facility there and take the homeless and put them into, the, you know, the, the 60 unit facility. And it, there's there is a resistance from the advocates. So I think I mean, I think it's a good idea. I'm going to talk with uh, the chairman of the housing committee because we're going to be, you know, everybody wants to do something, um, but nobody wants to take a risk or try something that's a little unconventional. It's the easiest thing to do is to write somebody a check and say, thank you for housing this person.
0: Right. It, it just has a lot less overhead costs than uh, than building units, which in I mean, down in L.A., we passed the Triple H measure. Uh, I think it was about four years ago, and a couple billion dollars. And I believe it's less than 500 people, less than 500 units have been housed and have been created in that period of time. So it's just so slow to yeah. build houses. In the state of california right
1: and and what we're not doing is we're not capturing the entrepreneurial or the of, of of individual people that say they want to do it you know I get together 60 million dollars to build this find the you know three acres and put in the services and all that that's the cadillac that's 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 grand but but if i'm unhoused and i get a room I'm much better off. Right. And then or if I'm I'm, if I'm in a facility and I move into a room and then somebody. So maybe some family, a a single parent with a child can move into the affordable housing unit that I have. And, you know, the folks that handle those things should be able to to make it work.
0: Right. That would be a good thing, too, that you've you've basically taken somebody who might have you know, gotten off the street and now has gotten a job and could transition to a unit in somebody's house because they've, they've shown they're established, uh, they're, they've got a job, things of that nature and could be a good tenant essentially.
1: Right. And if they, and all the support services, they're used to doing the support services and they can f- do them on their own. They're not like people, sometimes they want to build them in the, whole, the same building because they say, we want people to have access to these support services, which are are good. You know, I mean, who would have thought that the governor's that project uh, home key program to buy hotels and motels and 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 fix them up and house people? Um, you know, evidently, they've housed six thousand people in them so far. I mean, and, you know, not you know, we all know Los Angeles. We're in northern California. There's nice hotels. And then there's these sort of after 40 years or 50 years, it's They've they, they provided their services for the vacationer, but now that building could be used for something else. And it's it's one of those things when you think about it, you think, why weren't counties doing that? Why wasn't L.A. County and Alameda County and San Francisco and Sam, all these de- doing that, you know, during the last recession, buying that? You know, antici- we, had, we had a homeless problem 10 years ago, right? Why weren't they doing it? So all ideas are worth considering and seeing where the place is and, and, and how that gets worked out. I think it's, is worth considering.
0: Well, I appreciate uh, your openness to that idea. And, uh, you know, we should, we should be working across, uh, the spectrum to find solutions to this. And and I've worked with a couple of different organizations down here in in Cal in Southern California that, uh, work with homeless youth as well as, uh, you know, all spectrums of the population. And, and, uh, you know, I know that they've got one program called the host home program, which essentially is this program, but on a smaller scale. So, and they've placed a number of people like this and it's, and it's worked out pretty well. So I think that it could, uh, they could definitely uh, roll out and scale to uh, the whole state. So um I think uh, we're at a, break, at a breaking point. Uh, we're going to take a station ID break. This is Matt Matter, and I'm on the program Unite and Heal America. I've got uh, Senator Bob Wykowski here with me. Uh, we're talking about issues uh, in Southern California, the environment, homelessness, coming back in a minute, K B 790. Back here with you, this is Matt Madden on Unite and Heal America. I've got Senator Bob Wojkowski here with me, and uh, we're talking about many issues facing California. One of them is arbitration clauses, and uh, we, have, uh, we have a lot of companies out there that have arbitration clauses that force their workers To arbitrate their claims rather than to be able to take them to court, and I know that you've been behind uh, a number of bills uh, related to this. And maybe you could tell us uh, what your thoughts are as far as uh, proposed legislation going forward.
1: Well, unfortunately, it seems like the arbitration industry (laughs) makes you continue to do work after you've after you've tried to correct it. I mean, you know, I'm sure your listeners know that. Arbitration, when it first came up, was, you know, really designed for business to business. The Federal Arbitration uh, Act was really focused on sophisticated plaintiffs and sophisticated um, defendants. And now we fast forward into a situation where you can't get a job. Sometimes you can't start a job unless you sign a mandatory arbitration and you've got mandatory arbitrations on the back of your credit card uh, receipts and, you know, it, this idea that we're not going to clog the courts really uh, is a one one-side, one-sided uh, deal because these, you know, if I, if I have a dispute with my uh, credit card, I'm one guy. My credit card has 12 million or 30 million uh, clients. and they tend to use the same arbitration companies, the same arbitrators. So what we did a couple years ago, you know now you looked at those contracts and they would say, you got to go, you got to go to south dakota and you got to apply louisiana law to these arbitration clause when you're in california you work for a california company and you say who who put that in so i did a bill a couple of years ago to knock that out it said if you're a californian you get to apply california law and you get to have the arbitration in california so last year we did 707, a bill, and basically what we're finding is that the arbitration clause said you can't do a group arbitration like a class action suit. You had to file individually. And what happened, because the arbitrator, I mean, the employers felt like nobody would do this. And what happened is people filed all these uh, claims, all these little small people saying, okay, I want to go to arbitration. I want my day with, the, with this dark arbitration. Who knows what the, we never know what the, uh, The law is that they provide because they they never disclose it. They never even have to apply the law of the state. But we found out is that the little consumer would file the arbitration and pay their half of the fee because it said in the contract, you've got to pay the fee. They would pay it and it went into this dark hole where the employer or the credit card company wouldn't pay their half of the fee. So the arbitrator would never set the hearing. So you were just in, you had to go into arbitration and you couldn't get out of it. So basically the bill said that no, 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 you can't do that. If you got thirty days from the time that you pay the, the, the fees, and if you didn't pay if the if the defendant, the employer or the credit card company didn't pay it, then you had three options. You could either go to state court and get a real trial with a real judge, you could you can get a judgment, you win, or you can you could you could pay the fees and go forward um With with the arbitration, so we thought it was a you know a a real good deal. Majority majority leader Bob Hertzberg out in Van Van Eyes was you know a co-author with me. We worked on jointly giving some accountability for workers and consumers for a way a way out. And now I find out, (laughs) I know that some of the arbitrators, the the judges, so so to speak, they're saying that the due date from when your payment is is not. Thirty days after the first, the plaintiff pays it. The the, the complainer pays it. It's thirty days before they fit, set the trial. So people they're they're trying to go around the the law that we just changed, and it's it's madness. I mean, I mean, you want to. Get very aggressive with these people, Matt. I don't know what to say. It's just just, we're trying to make it a little bit fair for the little consumer who nobody is paying attention to.
0: Well, I I can only say amen to that because I I happen to uh, be subjected to these arbitration agreements as I'm a plaintiff's employment attorney. So we run into these things every day, and and it is just as you said. Many times employers. Fail to pay their arbitration fees for months. And uh, before you had that bill, which I appreciate you uh, putting into, getting uh, put into law, they did delay for months and months and months, and there wasn't much you could do about it. Uh, And and, uh, we have used your provision to help uh, speed the process along. Now, I still don't like mandatory arbitration because quite frankly, the arbitrators, uh, who do lots of cases for the same entities end up having very low rates of finding for plaintiffs. I understand there was a study done that if there were 20 or more cases going to the same arbitrator, your chances of winning with that arbitrator as an employee were four percent. Yeah. So basically, the odds go to zero if you keep you if the defendant, the company keeps using the same arbitrators, they they uh, just keep
1: ruling in the company's favor. Right. And what they do is, is sometimes, as you know, they give you three names and you're you know, you're Joe Blow. You don't know the name of an arbitrator. mean, I don't know the name of your state senator. For, you know, yeah. you're going to know the name of a private uh, arbitrator that's there. So it it's just the whole arena is very, very unfair. You got some high powered, very well paid attorneys that are making these mandatory clauses. Um, uh as tough as they can be. And because it's a federal law, we could only do so much in the the state of California. Right. I mean, I did, I move, I would love for the Congress to, and the consumer uh, uh, protection Bureau to, to determine that arbitration clauses could per se not apply to contracts for employment and also credit card contracts. It was just, it goes back to just, you know, one company suing another. Google's going after Facebook. Fine, you guys can do arbitration and don't go to court.
0: Right. For consumer contracts and employment contracts, yeah, we shouldn't have mandatory arbitration because essentially it allows large companies to steal a little bit from a lot of people. So, say if you have a telecom company that, you know, is is uh, overcharging by ten dollars a person, well. That ten dollars to me, I'm not going to go to arbitration for ten dollars. But if you're doing it to a million people, well, then that's real money, and that's that's the unfortunate problem with these arbitration clauses.
1: Yeah, the other thing I snuck into that bill was a reporting requirement of the arbitrator's demographics, uh, because we were doing it for judges. We have we have, we want to know, you know, how many what are the, how many judges are male, how many judges are female, and we know that and the state bench it's about. 64 percent men and about 66 percent white but in arbitration it's 92 percent white and 74 percent men so it's just you know you, you the idea is that we want to have a more diverse court we should have more diverse arbitration collection so that it's people that look like us right people that you know it's not all old white guys so that information is now required to be brought in so we can have another look at that to say hey Arbitration companies, we need more diversity in that in your panel.
0: Absolutely, and uh, yeah, it's it is unfortunate that uh, we don't have a diverse set of choices when we're forced into arbitration. So it's a, a double whammy. You're you're yeah. forced in a situation where you don't get a trial in front of your peers, and uh, then you're forced into a a venue that favors the employers versus the employees. So it couldn't be much more unfair. So, yeah, we do hope that the Biden-Harris administration takes this up and the Congress changes it. Uh, I think there were even some uh, Republicans that were kind of uh, supportive of limiting arbitration clauses. Uh, and. I think there were some noises regarding employment contracts and sexual harassment and things of that nature. We're getting some traction. Uh, obviously, didn't go anywhere this last term, but maybe we'll get some uh, traction this next one.
1: Yeah, and, and we're hopeful that uh, the bill that we did, that, that some of these, arbor- these companies that don't pay their fees, that the, the plaintiffs would actually take them to court and actually get a printed decision on you know so we have some body of law to say oh you have to apply this in california to all employment contracts because this is the uh, that are have these arbitration clause because this is the interpretation of you know the judge i mean it's it's a glacial pace that we're at but we're hoping to get some improvement but you know i uh i just scratch my head when i think of you know the, that worker that's trying to get a job now and says an arbitration clause and i gotta go and i'm all these restrictions, and you're just desperate for a job, so you take it, right? You're right. It's just the big guy beating up the little guy again.
0: Yeah, well, we run across it all the time that they basically have these mandatory arbitration agreements that you have to sign if you want to get employment. So as an employee, most employees don't have that kind of negotiating power, particularly at low-wage low, low wage jobs. I mean, if you're coming into McDonald's, you're not negotiating a contract at McDonald's. Uh they're telling you what what's going to happen. Right.
1: And but but if you weren't forced into the arbitration clause and you just had a judge, you could say, "Okay, I have a judge, maybe I don't know, 50-50? I don't know, 60-40, a little bit better than 4%, you know, it's just, it's that's that's the deal is that, you know, we're the country's founded on this idea that if you have a dispute, you should have equal access to the courts. You should have access to get in there and have your, you know, even if it's a 10 minute hearing, have the opportunity to state your case and what this, what your complaint is so that, you know. One idea
0: I have is that there could be a check box at a minimum to opt out of any arbitration. So, so it wasn't a mandatory situation that the employee would have a, a right to check a box saying I opt out of this arbitration. Mm hmm which would then kind of equal the playing field if because uh,
1: otherwise they're
0: they're just forced down their throats.
1: Right. Right. And uh, and and then uh, uh, the employers would still benefit because some people would never see the check the box. Right. They would just be in it. You know, There would be they catch some, but there would be other people that will say, I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but I may want my day in court if it if it comes into it. Because sometimes these disputes are they're not nickel and dime things. There's, there, there's serious, you know, uh, labor violations, discrimination, sexual harassment, the list goes on. Oh, absolutely.
0: We have uh, many cases like that are very serious cases um, that uh, unfortunately were forced into arbitration. We're going to have to take our break here on um, This is Matt Matter. I'm on the Unite and Heal America program. I've got Senator Bob Wykowski here with me, and uh, we'll be back from the break in just a minute. We're back with uh, Senator Bob Wykowski. This is Matt Matter on the United Heal America program and uh, circling back to a topic that we talked about a minute ago, homelessness, but uh, a different take on it, something that you've worked on a lot, the ADUs. And if you could explain kind of to the audience what those
1: are and uh, why they're important and and why we should have more. Well, about 20 years ago, Rod Wright, who was an assembly member at that time, a, a LA politician, passed a law that had every city had to, deter, had to set up a secondary unit uh, ordinance. So, it'd say, how can you build a granny unit or a secondary unit? And basically, almost universally, every city set up obstacles that made it impossible for somebody to build a secondary unit in their backyard or in their garage. I mean, it was just, they restricted, they made every type of restriction. So, in 2016, what I did is I did a bill 1069 that's sort of the granddaddy of the, the new wave of, of legislation. We defined the secondary unit as an accessory dwelling unit. So it was no longer dealt with as a separate a, a, a separate unit for your water district or special districts to charge you a fee, the city to charge you a fee. And we said you can't force people to have parking. They can park on the street if they're there. And the people actually have a right to build a secondary unit or convert their garage or convert part of their house. As long as they're within a half mile of transit, that's, uh, that's all it had to be not major transit. Just if there's a bust up within a half mile of my, of this house, I could do it. And we just hope to liberalize to, and to say that there was no sprinklers. You couldn't require sprinklers. There's a, a whole list. And it started this Renaissance, you know, LA went from one year, had 80 units. And then the next year and the, 2017, when the first bill, first year, it was almost 2,000 units that were built. Um, so so there was activity trying to figure out, you know, after these restrictions, I did another bill that got rid of the uh, impact fees. You know, cities charge, some cities charge $50,000 just for the permission to do it. So we said, if you have less than 750 square feet, there cannot be any impact fee. There's no school impact fee. The old law was 500 feet, so we moved it to 750. The same thing with these special districts, these assessments, uh, and that we did a grandfather clause in because you know Los Angeles believes that there's 250,000 unpermitted units. You know the people bootleg these things into their garage in their backyard, and you know we would argue with the League of Cities and the locals to say, well, how can you say this is going to have an adverse effect when all these people have built them invisibly in the backyard? So we got rid of that, and then we had another barrier was. Home ownership. You know, if you bought an apartment complex or a duplex or a fourplex, you don't have to live in one of the units. And they were saying in ADUs, she had to have home ownership. So we sort of got rid of these, you know, restrictions. And now we're in this implementation and um, information uh, because people are hungry to know about that. It allows seniors to build a second unit, maybe to have a homeless person in, or maybe some seniors who don't have the income could move into uh, the ADU and then rent out the house if, if it gets it. So that's a a great
0: uh, opportunity for a lot of people. And, and the main thing that's driving our homelessness problem from what I know is the shortage of units. I mean, we just haven't built enough new uh, units in our most densely populated areas. So anything that allows that restriction to kind of be, uh, loosened in any way is, is very helpful 2,000 units in one year is great
1: right and they and we think you know I mean in the Bay Area we have a million five hundred thousand uh, single-family houses you know and they're they're ordinary stucco one-story buildings they're nice I have one I'm in one right now you know so there's nothing wrong with them but but if you want to build another stucco one-story building in the backyard um, You could you could do it. And it's an it's an easy way. It's like the the homeless idea. We want to incentivize homeowners to do something that that's good for them. We don't need it's not a big government program. We say if you want to do it and then you rent it out. If you live in the neighborhood, you get a little bit of extra cash or, you know, there's so so many boomerang kids and so much economic turmoil that sometimes it would be just family members that would be uh, living in debt. You know, one of the tricks is trying to figure out the financing, because a lot of. Very low-income people want to do this, but they're not going to be able to pay that. If they want to borrow the money from a bank, they're not going to be able to pay it until the unit's completed. And as we know, as construction, that may be four months, six months, whatever it is. Um, So we're working on that, trying to figure out how we can do a bridge loan when other construction folks. But it's really an exciting, there's this whole new industry that's popped up where people that, you know, they specialize in your uh detached garage they turned that into a unit they'll take your, your garage if it's in the house standalone prefab things there's there's a lot and it's you know it's less than two hundred thousand bucks so it's basically you can almost get uh three adus for the price of one affordable housing units and again it's it's you want to have these renaissance because a lot of our cities and towns are a little tired beat up maybe and the idea of having People go in with construction and building these, you know, some of them are 400 feet, 500 feet, but there's, it's enough for a single person to live in. And, um, you know, it gets folks, gets folks working, it energizes a a community. And again, I'm not saying it's the whole solution to the homeless problem or to the housing problem, but it. you know, if 10% of the people would build the units, we're talking a million units, you know, over a million units in, in, uh, in California. And then that's, that's a number. Then you're, then you're breaking into the that
0: would solve that. because we've only got 150,000 homeless people. So if we, if we had an extra million units, it would certainly, uh, reduce the demand, uh, the um, supply problem that we have currently, which is driving up rent. So,
1: yeah, you know, and it's, and it's like a lot of people, you know, the, the dream in the, 50s and the 60s, my parents bought a house in the, the suburbs. A lot of these people are in their 80s and 90s now and they're a widow and they're by themselves. There's there's a real problem. You know, we are learning from the pandemic, the isolation that people are going through, that they they're not getting, you know, we're staying at home and we're not we're not having communications or we're doing zooms. And you realize that it's an opportunity to, to bring other folks that may not, you know, that may be your friend that just rents an apartment to come in and live in the backyard or cut, you got a 4,000 square foot house, for God's sakes, you're there by yourself. Why not make another, you know, 600 square foot unit for your friend to live in there and have their own little kitchenette? So it's a lot of, lot of good social changes and uh, and opportunities, even if it's a caretaker for you.
0: So I think uh, definitely getting the financing piece in place to kind of do the micro lending that would be necessary to, to get that done, because I would think converting a garage might be less than, even less than 200,000. In- oh, yeah,
1: it could be, I mean, I mean, well first, there's a lot of bootleg garages that it's gonna cost you an itty bitty little amount just to get it up to code or get it safe. Probably they're, they're safe. I'd like to see some of the garages come Garage doors come down, and they have a door with a window in it, look like a regular little living unit. Because a lot of them are just, you know, the people are living there behind the garage door, and you're thinking, okay, let's get, let's come clean here. Um, So it's a, it's, it's possibility.
0: Yeah, well, just uh, kind of pivoting to another topic. uh, We're uh, talking to Senator Bob Wykowski on the Unite and Heal America program with Matt Mattern and 790. And wanted to uh, talk to you a bit about the pandemic and and currently the rollout of the vaccine and and uh, what's happening here in the state of California. And what can we do to um, improve the
1: the situation on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I. Simple, simple, simple. I think part of the initial rollout with the 1A, 1B, 1C, who's in the emergency, you needed to be, have a PhD to figure out where it was. And everybody, you know, if they weren't calling the state senator's office on EDD, they were calling about where am I? When am I When am I going to get the, the vaccine when I'm on the list? And, you know, we, we, we have these ideas that go out there, like have dentists, you know, Give the vaccine, uh, and I think what we what we need to do is to simplify it. You know, if we're if we're worried about vaccine giving vaccinations to uh, in uh, critical workers, then we should go to the place of employment, and we should have the people go to the, the hospital or the uh, the senior center or senior uh, assistant living, and give everybody the vaccine there. Go go to them with the with the with the needle, versus saying well come back tomorrow. You're not on the list uh, uh, to do that. Um, there's a whole other problem with, you know, we get promises of we're going to have a million vaccinations and then we only get 500,000. So that's, that's another problem that, uh, I mean, it's all hands on deck trying to figure that out. What do you think are the
0: the biggest challenges in terms of turning that around and, and getting our kind of organizational ducks in a row so that the, uh, The distribution of the vaccine is is done more effectively.
1: Well, I mean, I'm I'm I favor the you know bringing in the the National Guard, bringing in dentists, bringing in the pharmacists, bringing in these new workers because everybody who's involved in the hospital right now is beat to death. I mean, they're working so hard trying to figure out how to fight with the COVID to try to say now we're going to organize this whole vaccination program. It's a huge separate thing that shouldn't be put on onto their uh, lap. I think it it has been, but going back, I think as simple as you can make it and just say, you know, we have the, all the football stadiums, you got Dodger stadium wants to have it. You know, the, the problem with that is that some people just can't get there. They're stuck at, uh, at their home or they don't have automobiles. And, and we know that there are some zip codes that have a unbelievably high rate of incident, you know, whether it's in Latino areas, wherever the section is, and we should be going out to them to give them the vaccinations and set up ad hoc facilities.
0: Well, that makes sense. I I do think that uh, our healthcare workers have done heroic work over the last year, but uh, they've got to be wiped out after a year like this, uh, just all hands on deck for 12 months straight they've just got to be wiped out and throw another project in their lap is, uh, is challenging. So I I think uh, it does make sense to kind of spread it out to other workers that could, uh, could take up some of the slack from them right now.
1: It's giving somebody a shot. It's, you know, I mean, I'm not saying, I, I'm sure medics, people that were medics in the army, they didn't go to medical school. They went to, you know, they had one class in a community college and say, yeah, I'm a medic. Okay. I'll give you the shot. And you learn how to do it. And it's a repetitive thing. And, and we need like, six months or nine months or whatever it is, folks, to do that and um, make it easy to bring back retired um, uh, folks that say, "Okay, you're now going to be the chief uh, uh, vaccinator here in this community, and we're going to go out there and we're going to and we're going to uh, treat our people." And then, obviously, sticking with the you know, wear your mask and social distance too. We got to keep that's that's going to be with us until it's over.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, definitely remind everybody, wear your mask everywhere that you go. And that definitely reduces the spread. And it seems as though our numbers have been trending down over the last week or so, which is good news. Um, I just wanted to thank you again, Senator, for being on the program. It's been great having you and uh, hopefully uh, we could have you uh, come back on the program at sometime in the future and, and talk about what's uh, been happening in the last, you know, going forward. It's been my pleasure to be on Unite and Heal America. Very good. Keep up the good work. Thank you. This is uh, Unite and Heal America with Matt Mattern and KABC 790. Uh, Looking forward to having you back next week. This pre recorded show furnished by Matthew Mattern.